Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host, and thanks for joining in. So I've done quite a few episodes related to some element of the opioid epidemic, and I hope you scroll back and find some of those because some of them are really interesting. For example, Dr. J. Joshi, a doctor who went to prison for prescribing opioids, and he wrote a book about it. Um, it's a really interesting story. So go back, scroll back. You can listen to him. Cheryl, the founder of Team Sharing. She's a mother whose son died in the opioid epidemic, and she actually confronted one of the Sackler family members, uh, the Sackler family being the folks who owned Purdue Pharma. She confronted him face to face, and she talks about that in the podcast episode. And then there's an episode with Jeremiah Lindman, whose brother died in the opioid epidemic, and he figured out a way to use his particular set of skills to map it out, uh, to try to help fight the opioid epidemic, which is just, you know, killing small towns all over America. The opioid epidemic is so far reaching and affects people in so many different ways. And this episode is another example of that. My guest today is Dr. Erica Fernandez, a physician who works in the Division of Medical Genetics at Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And she will tell you more about what she does in the podcast, but she and her team at Nemours authored a recent study titled A Novel Syndrome Associated with Prenatal Fentanyl Exposure. Uh, this was published in Genetics in Medicine Open. So she is going to talk about how they came about to identify this new syndrome and link it to fentanyl exposure while in the womb. She will also provide details about the new syndrome. Basically, what does it look like? And ongoing research into determining exactly why fentanyl causes it. You know, the opioid epidemic has been happening since the 1990s, and we hear a lot about fentanyl now, which some, including the CDC, are calling the third wave of the opioid overdose deaths. So real quick here, the first overdose death wave started in the 1990s with prescription opioids. The second wave started in 2010, around 2010, with the increase in opioid overdose deaths being linked to heroin. And now the third wave, which began in 2013, where the increase in overdose deaths was mostly caused by synthetic opioids, like illegally manufactured fentanyl. And now illegal fentanyl is being combined with lots of things that are out there floating around on the street, for example, combined with cocaine or counterfeit pills, and it can and will kill you easily. It's that strong. So if you were thinking about dabbling in drugs right now, uh, any sort of street drugs, you may want to rethink that. Okay, anyhow, let's connect with Dr. Fernandez and hear about this new syndrome. All right, everybody, we are connecting with Dr. Erica Fernandez, and we are going to talk about a new syndrome associated with prenatal fentanyl exposure, and we're going to explain all that. But first, Dr. Fernandez, thank you for being here. And um, I thought before we could start, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do. Great. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Um, yeah, so um, I am a, a physician. I specialize in pediatric genetic disorders. Um, so I trained in pediatrics, and then I went on to do a fellowship in genetics, um, and then immediately started working at Nemours, where I had been um, since then. So I've been working at Nemours genetics department um, since um, 2018 is when I started. Um, and that's Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and there I um, see various kids who have developmental differences, um, sometimes autism, sometimes birth differences. And I also work in the cleft and craniofacial clinic. Um, so I specialize in children who have um, cleft palate, cleft lip and palate. Um, and those are sort of my, my areas of interest. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. And uh, there's so much in the news around fentanyl. So when I read your paper, it really caught my interest. And before we get into that and fentanyl as a specific cause, can you briefly explain how a novel syndrome involving developmental or genetic anomalies uh, or differences is recognized? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Usually it is when we recognize a pattern of features or a pattern of malformations that um, has not been described before. So we see a child that has certain characteristics um, and perhaps it doesn't match up with a known condition. Um, and we're, when we do extensive genetic testing, which nowadays we have um, exome sequencing, we have chromosome testing, we do genetic testing um, and either we identify a known genetic condition or we don't. Um, sometimes we um, identify changes in what we call candidate genes where we know the, what gene it is, but maybe we don't know the function yet. Um, and sometimes when we get that, we're able to collaborate with other providers around the world and figure out what condition this gene causes. Um, that's one way. And then another way is when we see patterns of malformation that do not have a genetic cause, we do extensive testing, and then but we still see the same pattern of differences, um, which, which we'll get into with um, the fetal fentanyl syndrome. Um, so we see birth differences in babies who, um, and we see them happening over and over again with no identifiable genetic cause, um, but they perhaps have a similar link um, as we're gonna talk about with um, a teratogen or an exposure. Um, and when we see these similarities, um, we can sort of connect those dots as to what um, potentially is causing that. All right, great. So you assessed, uh, you and your team assessed I believe six babies. I think there might've been more babies involved in the study at yeah. the end of it, but um, can you just tell us a little bit, uh, you described a little bit how you do the assessment, but just, mm -hmm. I, I guess a little in a little more detail and the physical features that the baby shared. Yeah, so the way it sort of um, came about was Dr. Grip and Aaron Wadman, um, who were on the paper as well, saw a child in clinic who had um, some birth differences, um, including um, club feet. He was small, had a small head size, some distinctive facial features. Um, and it reminded Aaron, who's a genetic counselor, of a patient that she and I had seen together in cleft clinic. Um, 
so we, you know, pulled up his chart because we frequently collaborate together while we're in clinic, pulled up his chart um, and, you know, put them side by side and they were striking similarities. Now that child also had a cleft palate. He had club feet. Um, these boys had um, some genital differences, um, you know, things like hypospadias, uh, cryptorchidism, things like that. Um, and then the facial features. And then we're like, you know, he also looks like this other patient. So we pulled up another baby we had seen in cleft clinic again, because he had a cleft palate, also had the club feet, had genital differences, was very small, and all these same things and the same face, very similar facial dysmorphisms. Um, and then we saw the link that they all had fentanyl exposure. And then a step beyond that for those three is we realized that um, that we thought they initially had a condition called Smith-Lumley opitz. Um, and that was from early on because they also had this um, fusion of the second and third toe, two, three toe syndactyly, which is a hallmark for SLO, Smith-Lumley opitz. Um, that plus genital anomalies, small head size, these all go with SLO. And even when we tested the cholesterol levels, which I think we'll get into a little bit as well, they have this hallmark um, biochemical abnormality. Um, and then when we rechecked it, though, it normalized. We also did genetic testing for SLO, which was negative. So all this, you know, we ruled that condition out, but that was a striking similarity because SLO is rare. Um, and you know, these, these kids had these very similar features. So from there, we, we identified the other children. So for that, that total of six, um, and we realized that we were onto something here. Um, so we, um, did an IRB application. So we got IRB approval, um, to conduct this study. So we, um, then talked with the families. So all these children were, um, except for one were in foster care. So we had to get the appropriate consents in order to publish photos and publish their cases. So we made sure everything was appropriately consented. Um, and then we, we, um, put together the study for our, for our babies. Okay. So, and, and you, you ruled out the other syndromes and you ruled mm -hmm. that it could potentially be, and you're like, this is something new. Yeah. So, um, when we realized these features and the, the facial features, um, that we saw from most of them was this, um, very short nose, um, that was, um, you know, the, the nares sort of point outward, we call it an antiverted nose, a smooth philtrum, thin upper lip. Um, a lot of them had, um, down slanting eyes or ptosis and a very flattened facial profile um, in addition to their cleft palate, um, as well as what we call bitemporal narrowing, which is sort of narrowing at the forehead. Um, and then there are some hand findings, um, very short and adducted thumbs, single palmar creases. Um, and those were, were pretty unique to um, and shared by all the babies in, in the, um, that we had at Nemours. Um, and uh, we thought that was, you know, a pretty striking feature. So with the concern for Smith-Lonely opits, um, we had sent the cholesterol levels, the um, 7 dehydrocholesterol, um, which for most of them was elevated, but then normalized, um, which does not happen in SLO because it's a disorder of cholesterol metabolism that stays elevated. Um, so though we had looked at the gene that causes SLO, which is... Um, uh, DHCR7, um, did testing for that gene and it was negative. Um, uh, and then they all had chromosomal microarrays and then exome sequencing, um, to rule out any potential genetic cause. 
um, and exome sequencing looks across all of the genes um, for any mutations, variations, um, and then matches up with the phenotypes. So theoretically, any genetic condition would have come up on the exome sequencing. So for all of them, they either had um, negative genetic testing or a finding that was non-contributory. All right. And from your study, it looked like the participants, uh, the babies, they were exposed to several drugs. Um, so I was curious how you connected these characteristics indicating they, this is a new syndrome. How did you all say, okay, this must be from fentanyl? Yeah. So the other drugs, which um, are commonly seen, you know, in substance abuse disorders, things like cocaine, um, uh, I think a couple, there was also um, concomitant heroin exposure. Um, for most of them, the fentanyl was the drug of choice. So the mothers, you know, of these babies, when we look at their, you know, H&P notes from the nursery, so we didn't meet most of these mothers, um, it was, you know, fentanyl was the drug of choice and their drug screens were positive for fentanyl. Um, and the other drugs um, were kind of scattered in there. Um, you know, and also we know that cocaine has been studied and we know sort of from the 90s, the ramifications and what was seen with cocaine and, and exposure. Um, so that, you know, we felt like did not fit what we were seeing, the pattern that we were seeing. Um, whereas, um, you know, the fentanyl was something that was shared amongst all of them and it was the drug of choice and that was used at substantial levels on a daily basis for this core six. So that was, you know, why we felt like this was that um, the cause of that. Yeah. And, and especially in the ongoing fentanyl epidemic, um, we know that yeah. that is something that is, is used frequently. So when you were mentioning cholesterol earlier, mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of times when people hear cholesterol, they think of like bad things, right? Like, oh, yeah. cholesterol is too high. It's bad. I just, um, just for our listeners, so they know, um, you know, if something interferes with cholesterol metabolism in a developing fetus in plain language as, as much as possible, mm -hmm. you know, what, what could go wrong? Yeah. So cholesterol, um, for, you know, like you said, kind of goes against, uh, what we understand. So cholesterol is important. We need cholesterol. Um, and it's especially important for the developing fetus. It's important for brain development for, for many, many things. And um, if that is interfered, these are called um, disorders of sterile metabolism. There's other ones besides SLO that cause abnormalities in the sterile pathway. And cholesterol is also needed um, for um, the steroid hormone synthesis. So things like testosterone. Um, so when they are not able to make these hormones, um, then we can see these congenital anomalies. And for SLO specifically, it is the final step in the cholesterol pathway. So the enzyme 7-dehydrocholesterol um, is what is the last uh, enzyme that, that makes cholesterol that we use. Um, you know, for adults, if there were, um, you know, a problem, we don't really see anything because you have formed all of those things. Um, but early, you know, in embryologic development, it's very important. And it's probably why we see a lot of the genital abnormalities in boys, um, you know, is because a lot of the, the steroid synthesis is, is not occurring. I, I actually didn't even uh, think to look at that in your paper, the, but the biological sex, was it uh, male, like percentage wise? 
they they were um there were five males and uh five males one girl in our oh, in our okay. study for our six patients so initially we were only seeing boys um which we you know our first five um we were like these are these are all boys and we thought perhaps that was you know we were onto something else but then we had a girl that popped up she was one of the one of the twins there's there's two there that are twins um so i think it was just a, a selection bias initially so in terms of the theories as to why fentanyl might interfere with cholesterol mm-hmm. metabolism somewhere in that pathway what's going yeah. on in that area so um the th- when when we sort of saw these things and you know felt that this was a phenocopy for smith lumley opitz i had the theory that you know this is you know almost an exact phenocopy of flo from right down to the biochemical um and so i you know felt that the fentanyl had to be disrupting that same critical step in cholesterol metabolism, um, blocking the 7-DHC. Um, and, you know, initially that was just a theory. So, um, you know, we asked that question because, you know, people were asking, we know that street fentanyl is not just fentanyl. There is mixed with who knows what else in there. Um, so, you know, we couldn't really say that it's the fentanyl specifically, or is it a contaminant? Um, xylazine, for example, has been also very big in the news, um, and, you know, mixed in with the fentanyl. Um, but from, again, I am not a biochemical person. We actually have researchers, um, at, in Nebraska who are studying this exact question. Um, but fentanyl has, um, a specific property that has to do with cholesterol and lipid, um, in the way that it's broken down. So um, that's why we felt like it was biologically plausible, but they are studying the exact mechanism for how fentanyl in- might interfere with cholesterol metabolism. So we're hoping that um, that will be um, further, be able to further studied and, and published um, All right, in the coming so years. We'll know down, down the line. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yes. Yes. Um, and just out of curiosity, is this a recognized syndrome? Like, is there a name, a diagnostic code, so to speak? Are you at that step? Okay. So um, we have termed this fetal fentanyl syndrome um, because of the feature so similar, you know, to fetal alcohol syndrome. You know, we've only had the one paper with those 10 patients. So we were initially in that paper hesitant to have sort of a name before we had proven that it was the fentanyl. Um, but we are, you know, confident now, even though we still have the ongoing research studies looking at the mechanism. So we have termed this fetal fentanyl syndrome. Um, and, and likely as we do more research, um, again, making that parallel to fetal alcohol will likely also have, um, a fetal fentanyl spectrum disorder, um, because it's appearing that based on the timing and dosage and things like that, that we can, we have, you know, children who we are enrolling in our next phase who have perhaps more mild features who had fentanyl exposure, but perhaps only to a certain point in the pregnancy. We have a couple who, um, of patients who once the pregnancy was recognized, then the the drug was stopped. So they still have some abnormalities, but not to the degree of our core six. Um, So we are seeing these effects. Um, So we're likely going to be having a spectrum of things that can be caused by the fentanyl. Uh, So given the fentanyl use epidemic, Uh, You know, we hear about it all the time in the news and Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. Uh, The work you're doing, just from a public health perspective, um, what do you think are the most important next steps 
Yeah, that's that's a, a great question and something that we're hoping to have an impact on. That's, you know, obviously identifying this, um, you know, to me, this is a game changer in the fentanyl epidemic. I mean, um, knowing that this causes such a significant issue is is huge and um, really is shifting that perspective. So, you know, our hope is that um, this will be recognized as a clear teratogen, um, similar to how alcohol was, you know, now there's all these disclaimers about, you know, drinking during pregnancy, and obviously alcohol is not on the same level as fentanyl as as far as, you know, the illicitness of it and all of that. Um, but our hope is that if this is something that doctors are, you know, able to make their patients aware of, you know, either in prenatal counseling, obviously, that's complicated by the fact that, a lot of times there is no prenatal care sought, um, at least for, you know, the patients in our study, there wasn't any prenatal care for most of them. Um, but, you know, making it known to the public that um, fentanyl is a teratogen and can cause these malformations, um, we're hoping by bringing that to light that can, you know, help some people in getting the care that they need and seeking out care um, because it's not about themselves anymore, um, you know, if they do become pregnant. And uh, just, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with the word teratogen. I know the science mm -hmm. people probably are, but uh, can you just maybe just describe what that is? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, a teratogen is something that causes harm to a developing fetus, um, whether that be a drug, environmental exposure. Um, so things like um, uh, thalidomide is one of the well-known ones that caused, um, when, mo when moms took them thalidomide for morning sickness, they, the babies had uh, missing arms and legs um, or very malformed arms and legs. There is uh, retinoin or tretinoin, which uh, is uh, a treatment for acne that can cause significant malformations in babies. So any medication or ex um, environmental exposure that can cause harm to a developing fetus. All right. So everybody knows that now <laughs> that word is, um, this, this is great. Thank you, Dr. Fernandez for your time. And they, this is, um, amazing research that you guys did. And I think it's so important. Unfortunate, you know, that we have yeah. this epidemic it's, it's sad, but, um, you know, I think you guys are doing a lot of great work. So thank you very much. Yeah. We're, we're excited about, you know, getting the word out about this, you know, not just the scientific community. Um, obviously, we want them to be aware of it, but for for the public as well, to you know, to realize what this is and and what all's going on. Um, so we're we're also excited to do this work. As you said, it's it's sad, but it's yeah. um, it's bringing that light to this that we're hoping. Exactly, bringing awareness and hopefully yeah. maybe uh, helping some other people out there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. And uh, I'll be following you guys to see, um, you know, any Great. other research you guys come out with and best of luck with everything else there. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, we will have some some other things that will be coming out. Awesome. Awesome. I will, I will be on the lookout. I'm always on the lookout Great. For, <laughs> for podcast topics and stuff. Well, All wonderful. right. Enjoy the rest of your day there. Thank you so much again. Okay. You as bye well. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for joining in for this episode. Uh, I hope you learned something. It's uh, really timely, fascinating stuff. And I hope you subscribe, share the podcast, rate it, you know, all that jazz. Um, but seriously, if you do have a free minute and can leave a review or a rating, thank you. Uh, you can do that on iTunes or Spotify. Just type in 
or search for causes or cures and drop a quick rating. I only ask because ratings are good feedback for me, but they also help get the podcast uh, noticed by other people. I will link to Dr. Fernanda's paper in the podcast description and in my blog at bloomingwellness.com if you want to dive in a little deeper and read some more. All right, and now it's time for the closing quote. And this one is from Robert Heinlein. When faced with a problem you do not understand, do any part of it you do understand, and then look at it again. I like that. All right, guys, I hope to tune in next time. Uh, Go out there and have a great day and do great things. And bye for now.